Oh, come on, Blake. This is not something you do by numbers, not even highly sophisticated ones. This is an area that has remained the exclusive province of specialists. Yes, I know. I know. There are quicker ways that you could kill him, but there are none more certain. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 10, where we're covering Breakdown, written by Terry Nation, directed by Via Lorimore, back for his third episode of the series. Yes, after Cygnus Alpha and Cyclocote Destroy. That's right, and the ratings on this were 8.8 million, so another drop, but still in that broad sort of 9 to 10-ish range. Yeah. yeah, and this one was first screened on Monday the 6th of March, 1978. Excellent. So... This is your one, Richard. It is. So, what did you think of Breakdown? Let's go right, right back. This was obviously the third episode that wasn't on a compilation tape. That's so, right. again, it was one of those ones that I discovered later on when we were going through after mm-hmm. the BBC tapes had been released. I already knew at that stage this had a real reputation among fans as being terrible. Absolutely terrible. I don't think it's absolutely terrible. However, I don't think it's very good. I've got to Mm -hmm. say, I think it is a very distinct drop in quality from where we were last week, and certainly the weakest of season one so far. I think there is worse to come, at least one, but I think it's the worst we've had so far. There's a good bit in here, and I must admit, going back when I've watched this in the past, it has grown a bit in my estimations. It isn't what I sort of, you know, dismissed it as being 20 years ago, but watching it again for this, it actually went back down again quite a bit, I'm sorry to say. Okay. Uh, didn't hate it, but it's, yeah, quite weak, I think. Okay. I did have the memory that this wasn't very good. It was very slow in the middle, where they're with the swirly thing. Yeah, which um, ironically was the part I actually didn't mind this time. Overall, I found this one was, actually, I clearly liked it a bit more than you did, because I thought this one was a lot better than I remembered. Didn't drag as much as I thought it did. And I sort of thought none of the three segments really goes for too long, and there are three distinct segments to it. Yes. I think probably my biggest gripe with it, and it is more a fan thing, I think this is arguably the point the series really turns its back on Gan, I think. Yeah, there is a sense here of sort of trying to do something with him and failing, and after this kind of throwing the hands up in the air. This is supposed to be Gan's episode, and he spends most of it either just sort of walking around grunting and clutching his head, or on that table thing in the restraints. Sedated. Yes. Yeah, it's your big episode of the series, and you're sedated. Breakdown replaced an abandoned script called The Invaders, which was dropped. It was just too ambitious for the production team to do, Yeah, I think, and too time-consuming. It involved the Liberator flying through like a particle cloud or something in space, and there was an alien life form in there that attempted to take over the ship. Gan, I'm assuming because of his limiter, was the only one who could see it. And the culmination of the episode was going to be a split-screen type thing where Gan had to fight himself, which would have been technically quite demanding. Yeah. Well, I mean, just from a point of view of setting up those shots, yes. that would be a very long, slow, careful studio session. And when they're at the point now where they're literally sort of trying to turn this around very fast, get it on the screen, exactly. that would have been a struggle. Yeah. When this was replaced by Breakdown, David Jackson was apparently quite keen 
to sort of retain the fight sequence so you could have Gan fighting with himself, obviously, as he and the Limiter try to take control of Gan's brain. But that was rejected as being too ambitious. Yeah. I'll put our weekly shout-out to the Making Blake 7 Twitter account. They had a very good and very detailed breakdown of the Invaders script on their feed. Unfortunately, having said that, I think it's actually been archived. So hopefully that will reappear at some point because that really was quite impressive. So look, I think in terms of discussion, look, I've probably got two broad parts, which is what we see on screen and then probably what we'll call the GAN discussion. Mm -hmm. With the story discussion, there's probably three parts, which I guess is the initial stuff with GAN, what we'll call the swirly thing alert. I hate to go all technical on you, but all hands on deck, swirly thing alert. (laughs) And, And then Julian Glover. Yep. Our story starts with the Liberator obviously just flying through space and Gandhi's alone on the flight deck. You can say that's actually a really nice introductory mm. shot. You get a couple of views of the Liberator. It's also probably a little bit telling, though, that when there is a very long, gentle introductory shot of the Liberator, that tends to suggest that they're trying to pad an episode out. This one did underrun, not as bad as next week's. But, yeah. And yes, there was a bit of padding required to get this to 50 minutes, so... But we see Gan in charge of the ship. Now, clearly, he's been trained, obviously, in how the Liberator works to the point they're comfortable leaving him alone. Although I did get the feeling it wasn't so much a case of him actually looking after the Liberator as kind of just sitting there, and if any sort of lights flash up or there's anything to do... Jenna explicitly says to him when she gets there, you're not expected to cope yet. Yeah, well, that's true, which, which kind of shows in some ways perhaps how... Gans devolved a bit, really, because, I mean, we, we've sort of, in some of the earlier episodes, said how he was quite, like, we look at an episode like Cygnus Alpha, where he really takes charge of the group of prisoners. But whereas here, he's not even, you know, they don't even trust him to be alone for five minutes. Yeah, it comes across, Jenna's, contemptuous isn't the right word, but it is quite dismissive of him. Yes. And, and quite patronising. Really much to sort of pushes him out of the way and, and takes control of the ship. Yeah. Can I also make the point as well, and this goes right back to the first time I saw it, but I was reminded of it again here, if you're going into this episode thinking it's maybe not one you remember well, it's not one with a strong mm. reputation, opening with Gan sort of sitting there grunting at you isn't the most engaging or exciting. It, it just doesn't sell you that this is going to be a uh, exciting adventure. Mind you, things do suddenly liven up when Gan obviously uh, goes into his Hulk rage. He does, and he actually knocks Jenner out and then sort of basically sort of drags her off to his cave, so to speak. Uh, it is very much. He's sort of dragging her by a leg across the flight deck when Blake comes in. Would it be wrong of me to sort of read that as a... Not an attempted rape, it's not nearly that far, but certainly that he's dragging her off for nasty things? Well... Or am I reading too much into I, it? I don't know, because when Blake comes in, he immediately just drops her and just turns on Blake and attacks him, and he very clearly goes to break Blake's neck. Yes, yeah, and then look, knock him out with the convenient tranquilizers on the flight. Yes, deck. that's right. <laughs> we obviously very quickly ascertain that his limiter is playing up and there's a convenient line of dialogue to remind us that... It must have something to do with the limiter implant in his brain. And of course we get some more exposition that Blake says that it's clearly been bothering him for some time. Blake feels he's obviously been in pain, he's been trying to hide it. And of course now it's all come to a head. Pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> We then move to the sick bay where Gan's been restrained and the crew really are wondering what to do. Yeah, and this is a very interesting scene in that you do get to see the crew of the Liberator being very, in inverted commas, normal. Mm. In that this is just a bunch of work colleagues, so to speak, standing around dealing with another colleague. Yes. And so you get 
that sort of black humour. You get mm. concern, overt concern from some. You get sort of trying to put a brave face on it from others. You get Villa sort of trying to do a couple of black jokes to try and lighten the That's mood. That's right. You know? Funny. We're all standing here hoping there's something wrong with him. Something ordinary. A nice straightforward disease. And there really is that elephant in the room that if it is the limiter, they don't really know what to do. Mm. Kelly obviously gets to be the more moralistic one, I guess. Yeah, I, I just thought Kelly here was really just sort of unnecessarily and tediously wet and sappy here. Yeah, it is probably that move, and we are sort of spoiling a bit, probably in some of the later episodes where she's really the ship's medic and conscience, whereas Blake is very much, he's dangerous, I don't want him attacking us again. Sorry, he's staying restrained until we've sorted this out. Yeah, it just strains credulity somewhat that she's just watched him try and break Blake's neck, mm. drag off Jenna, and she's like, no, no, you can't do that to the poor thing. She very much sort of treats Gan almost as a child, really, when he wakes up and she's got the scenes ended with him later. Which doesn't help Gan at all, like, no. as a character. It just makes Callie look not just wet, but also kind of thick. You know, this is a character that's been part of a rebellion on a planet in Sorian Major when we first saw her. And here she doesn't even have the, not, not even ruthlessness, just practicality mm. of saying this violent guy probably needs to be tied down. No, and you, you see Villa give her the sort of resigned look of really, you, you do realise this is what has to happen. Yeah. Because he's putting the restraints on. Yeah, and, and that I think is a far better performance. I will say though that I do actually think this scene is very good. Kelly aside, mm. I think it looks very good. They use the filming budget here. Yes. The equipment set up is quite clever and it's quite well done. And they've clearly gone to a lot of work actually setting that set up. Yeah. Uh, with the props and everything that they use when they're assessing him. And it also does have this really neat feel, which you hinted at earlier, of a bunch of people who kind of know a bit of basic stuff and are kind mm. of trying to muddle through as best they can. They, they sort of know, well, look, you know, it's in his head, so we'll point the thing at his head and, oh, look, there's the limiter, and, well, that bit looks broken, but I guess that's doing something. It, it actually feels like real people, not characters. Like, like if this was Trek, mm. they would all suddenly be experts on neurosurgery and they all studied at the academy and they all have a techno-babble conversation. <laughs> Whereas here they're just going, look, I, I guess those burnt out bits are bad, I don't know. Yeah, there is that elephant in the room that no one really wants to admit that it's probably his limiter until Avon really just makes a cutting comment, oh, come on, this is going to tell you what you already know. Yeah. Which pushes Blake. I mean, Blake again, and we see Blake's temper a little bit here. He is obviously quite flustered. He doesn't know what to do. Mm. And that comes across. I mean, he also, you know, is quite snarky with Avon. He says, well, unless neurosurgery is one of your particular talents. We've run the diagnostic checks. It might show up something. Yes. And that something will tell you what you already know. Why don't you face it? Because I don't know what to do about it. I mean, if it is the limiter, I don't know how we can help him. Unless neurosurgery is one of your particular talents. Unfortunately, no. I do quite like the next bit because it... In some ways you could say it shows perhaps how desperate Blake is, but it also kind of shows maybe how naive Blake is as well, where he thinks that Zan could give them instructions to perform <laughs> brain surgery. You do note, though, that he actually does make the point. He says, if Zan was to give us the necessary information and detailed instructions, obviously anticipating the fact that Avon's going to leap in and put him down... <laughs> Which he then does. <laughs> yeah, he does anyway, yes. <laughs> it is a very good exchange. Now, that next scene is really interesting to analyse because on the one hand, it's a very interesting scene in that it builds this idea of a universe, things are very far apart, mm. as they sort of work out all these different planets they could go to. And there is some genuine thought going to you know, the pros and cons and the distances mm. and everything. But as a viewer, it is just watching people 
read a list of planets and numbers for three or four minutes. It's interesting too, I don't know whether they actually thought about how long 600 hours really is. I mean, it's three and a half weeks. It's hard because, yes, clearly it takes time to get to places in the Blake 7 universe. But but again, but, given, given that they are clearly either at the border or outside Federation yes. space, because when they go to the XK-72, that is outside the Federation. Well, it's certainly neutral anyway, yeah. So you would think it would be at least on the edges of Federation space. So, so that does mean that maybe this is a less advanced or you know, places here were colonised more recently or mm. more sparse or whatever. So I, I agree, it is a long time, but I, I do buy it. Well, even when they settle on XK-72 as being where they're going to go, that's 150 hours. Now, that means Gan is actually in those restraints for a week, <laughs> like, just about. Yeah, he is. It's also interesting, before... Avon tells Blake about XK-72, you do get the feeling that Blake has kind of, deep down inside, resigned himself to the fact that Gan's not going to make it. No, but we should at least try. We should at least try. Look, we'll go to the nearest possible destination. Realistically, Gan probably won't survive the journey. Mm. We do then obviously get XK-72 thrown into the mix. And Villa very quickly works out that Avon has obviously looked at that as a bolt hole. Yes, he has. (laughs) What is XK-72? It's a space laboratory. A permanent research facility financed by a consortium of neutral planets. Two specialist fields, weaponry and space medicine. An interesting combination, don't you think? How do you know all this? I looked it up in the data banks. It was information that I thought might prove useful to me. A bolt hole? Somewhere to run if things get too hot here. The thought had crossed my mind. At this point, we really then move into the second third of the episode where we meet the swirly thing or the space anomaly. Yes, the magnetic thing. Yes. When they decide they have to go through the danger zone, Avon is actually quite okay with the idea of Mm. going into potential danger. I mean, look, yes, he obviously wants to get to XK-72. It also really seems to be because he's deduced the parameters under which Zen is operating and because Zen basically doesn't know what's there and has been programmed so don't know means don't go. Yeah. But I also got the impression it's... Perhaps also because he really doesn't appreciate Zen answering back. Mm. Zen, set navigation computers for direct route to Space Laboratory XK-72. Speed standard by six. Rejected. You cannot reject a direct command. Yes, and he's trying to convince himself of that more than anything. And you're right. Avon doesn't like the idea that Zen knows more than he does and needs to prove that point. Or, Or is prepared to push back. Villa is also quite cautious because it is natural sense of self-preservation kicking in. But obviously once he's reminded it's to help Gan. Yeah, that's a really, really good performance from Michael Keating there because he is an entirely believable character there. He's somebody who, yes, he wants his friend... And let's face it, Villa's probably closer to Gan than anyone mm. else on the Liberator. Villa wants his friend to survive, but he also doesn't really want to put his life on the line and getting then there. getting there, and he, you can see him wrestling with his conscience, sort of going, mm. all, all right, no, you're right, I, I can't put myself above Gan, that's fine, we've got to help Gan. And, and, and let's just go before I change my mind. Yeah, and, and really being quite angry with himself about it. Now, of course, they do set off to go into the danger zone, But once Avon has worked out exactly what Zen shutting down on them really means, his immediate thing is, no, we have to turn back. Yeah, and it's not done as it usually would be as a way to sort of be antagonistic towards Blake or undermine Blake 
or counterblake. He just no. very quickly goes, hang on, no, the ship isn't going to function safely in this. We can't do it. We better turn around. And just, he doesn't even turn to Blake or defer to Blake. He just says, Jenna, turn the ship around. Yes, and he gets aggressive and grabs her when she says no. She's going to keep piloting even if they go into a flat spin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and again, Jenna is very... Naive again is, is too strong a word, but she's very... No, no, we're going to help Gan and... Yeah, she is committed to this course of action. Yep, and she's being, in Avon's view, and I think it's quite realistic here, irrational in her emotion. Mm. And he can't cope with that. Yes. And, and he cannot cope with being defied, particularly, dare we say, by a woman. Yes, and, and that is, again, as we've mentioned, Avon's reaction to women is a thing we'll keep coming back to. It is. And really, he only lets her go when Blake shouts at him. We then get, obviously, a new prop, which is the secondary view screen. <laughs> And indeed, we get a new set, which is the computer room. Yeah, and actually, that was really cool. And I could remember watching that scene when I was a kid, watching this for the first time, and Avon is trying to bypass Zen and get the auxiliaries online. Mm. I didn't need to be told. I knew exactly what all those lights meant. Yeah. It, it just really intuitively feels like a thing. While this is going on, of course, we have the scene with Callie and Gan, where Gan talks her into releasing him. Yes, now we'll talk about the whole Gan stuff as a group later on in the episode. Yes, but, of course, after he's attacked Callie, has another sort of berserker attack or whatever it is, yeah. she then makes her way to the flight deck and sort of tells the crew that Gans just tried to kill her. Blake's attitude feels very much like, it's your fault, basically. You feel the tension is getting to Blake a little bit here, mm. which, again, is realistic, and I like the way it's performed, but, yes, he has no sympathy for Callie at all. No. Which is fine, because, frankly, neither did I. <laughs> Obviously, while all this is going on, they're getting closer and closer to the space anomaly. We have the bit where Avon has successfully bypassed Zen but still has to restore the automatics. That scene doesn't really flow that well because he says that he still has to restore the automatics. Gan then comes in and attacks him. And he even says when Gan tries to rip that thing off the wall that if you do that, we're, we're completely screwed. Yeah, he then proceeds to pull it off the wall. Yes, and, and looks like he's going to use it as a club, I think. But... Once they've subdued Gan, suddenly the automatics are working okay. So Yeah, it didn't really flow that well. A couple of notes I had on this point. The first is that, interestingly, I hadn't picked this up before. There is a line fairly early on when they find the swirly thing where Jenna says, if only the computers are working, we could probably just fly straight through this. Yes. Which it actually means that what I'd always kind of remembered as being a bit of a deus ex machina or mm. just a bit of a cliche, oh, we'll fly through the middle and it all sort of works out actually is telegraphed to be the way to do it. And Avon getting the auxiliaries online mean they can. So it actually is flagged quite well. Yes, although there is the scene where they're obviously flying right through the middle of it and the ship's warping and everything, where he sees cutting the automatic. So I don't know whether that means the auxiliaries are running at that point or not, or whether he actually just wants her to relinquish control of the ship yeah. and, and just let the automatics take over completely. Yeah, not sure what that was about. The other point I had is that when Blake goes off to find Gan, mm. he doesn't leave Kelly in charge and Jenna flying. He puts Jenna in charge yes. and lets Kelly fly. Now, surely Jenna is the better pilot. Well, true. But then again, I guess Kelly's just had a traumatic experience. So <laughs> yeah, putting, putting her to work, I guess, is maybe in some ways his way of getting her back into... Yeah, maybe. Back into the right mindset. Maybe. We now really are into the last third of the episode mm -hmm. where they arrive at XK-72. Which is a really cool model. It is. It is a really, really cool model. I really like that. I did note here that this is 31 minutes into the episode. Yes. So we are very well and truly past the halfway point before we Indeed. get there. 
So I need to really make my strongest criticism of the episode here. Right. Because we now meet the crew of the XK-72. Well, actually, all our guest cast at this point. Indeed, all our guest cast. We're 31 minutes in, and we don't meet three characters. We meet three ciphers. These are not realistic, functioning human beings. No, I would probably make the point, I think Julian Glover is good enough to rise above the material he's given. Yep, I'll certainly accept that. He does a very good job with what he's given. Mm. But Kane is just a slightly warped psychopath who goes even further off the rails at the end for no apparent reason, and we'll talk about that. Farron is just a tedious fool, yeah. and Renor, I don't even know what he is, he's just a... Walking pickup line, he's just, really. Yeah, he's just there to feed lines, I guess. He, I suppose, is the one who pushes the narrative along for the few minutes while he and Kane are sitting there, and Kane is obviously just trying to delay the operation as long as he can. Sure, look, they all serve valid and worthwhile plot functions. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yes. But they don't feel like characters. I compare them to, for example, Leyland, Raker, and Artix. Yes. Or, or even someone like Prell, who we don't see a lot of, but at least Prell has moments where you think this is a real guy at his day job doing stuff. Yes, and I mean, we did say when we did Spacefall, really, with two or three lines of dialogue, you actually know who Leyland, Raker, and Artix are. Exactly. I didn't get any sense of that here, and I think it really does bring the episode way, way down. And particularly because, look, the guy who's playing Farron... He's a very well-accomplished actor, but mm. he is just sleepwalking through this. And when you've got a very boring and tedious character played with absolutely no life or animation whatsoever, I just found this really, really dragged. And, and yes, Julian Glover gives a fun, arch performance, but his character makes no sense at all. I guess if we talk about Kane for a minute or two, he considers himself to be a genius. Yeah. He's very obviously an autocrat. He clearly is somebody who wants the universe, you know, he wants the trains to run on time. The universe has a certain order to it. People do what they're told. And he obviously sees himself, I think, as being a bit above that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah, and it's interesting. Somebody who is very driven by process and Mm. order is antagonistic towards the bureaucrat. But I suppose it's sort of... Farron is petty. He isn't petty. He's more just he wants all these ducks in a row. Yeah, and that's an important point that I was going to get to as well. Farron is so unrealistically petty here. You know, we've got a guy dying on our spaceship and you want me to fill out paperwork. Yes. You know, he's that sort of a guy. So the problem then is when Kane just is completely dismissive of him and says, you know, you are a tedious bureaucratic fool. I've no time yep. for you. Rather than sitting there going, wow, that guy's a bit arch and he's really got a problem with authority, mm. you just go... Well, yeah, Farron is a fool, so mm. this guy's actually talking sense for a while, <laughs> which unfortunately means that when Kane does go completely troppo later on, it actually looks like an even bigger character shift than it, it should it, be. It does. You can probably make the point he's had his worldview challenged probably by the arrival of Blake in some ways. He is very much about order and stability and everything, whereas Blake, and he makes the point himself, Blake represents chaos and destruction, which culminates obviously in Blake's threat that Blake will destroy his hands if he doesn't, his beautiful artisan hands. Yeah, which again, I don't think that that was earned. Mm. And and this is perhaps part of the problem with the episode. If they'd spent a few less minutes just working out how far away every planet in the area was, and a bit more time on the XK-72 actually learning who these characters were. Uh, and giving them a bit more depth. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there'll be more payoff to that. It's not terrible. I mean, there is some good stuff in there, and the exchange between Kane 
and renal is actually a very good yes. scene. I, I just don't think the payoff is earned, and I don't think the characters are remotely as well fleshed out mm. as, frankly, we're used to them being in Black Seven. No. Right. Now, we mentioned Renor. He has quite an interesting introduction, because his first lines basically are pickup lines. It's a bit 1970s that Blake sends the pretty girl down to flirt with the Doctor while he tries to find out what Kane's about. The line when he meets Callie is probably one of the worst of them. Yes. Hello. This place is full of pretty girls. Prepare for immediate surgery, please. I appreciate what they're no doubt going for here is that he is that med school sort of undergraduate, cocky, self-assured, sort of, you know, typical med student sort of thing. I was going to say, it's very sort of doctor in the house in a way. Yeah, and and I get that that's what they're going for, but it is just done with sledgehammer subtlety Mm. and the dialogue you know you can write flirtatious dialogue that doesn't feel like it's just come off the back of a cereal packet (laughs) and and this does of course we then move to the scene where kane has alerted the federation and he's now just trying to delay the operation to give the federation time to arrive at the base and we do get a really nice scene for villa here where he has obviously been working in the background that Mm. Kane, because of course he came onto the ship and was talking about how wonderful the Federation was, and he has that little moment with Avon, where they sort of sit there and exchange the cocked eyebrows yeah. when he comes on. But he has clearly been thinking about this in the background and has worked out that you never really quite know what a genius is up to. Yes, and Villa also has a natural dislike of people who think they're smarter than him. Yes, uh, i.e. Avon. Yes. yes. <laughs> I must admit, just dropping out for a sec, I did very much like the bit where Avon says he's going across to XK72. Oh, good. I mean, good that you're going. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But, of course, Villa gets his little hero moment, really, where he distracts Jenna and Callie, where he goes and gets the gun belt and then sort of goes in and starts threatening the doctors. Mm. Now, you do sort of wonder whether he would actually be able to pull the trigger, and you do sort of sense a sigh of relief, I think, when he suddenly realises Avon's standing behind him. (laughs) Yes. We get, of course, one of Blake's probably more famous moments, I think, where he tells Kane that if he doesn't complete the operation in 20 minutes, he'll send him back to the station after having destroyed his hands. You can see that threat is right on the money. Yes. When Blake directly threatens his livelihood and the thing, obviously, that makes him special. The thing that defines who he is. Yes, you really see that hit home. Yeah, it is definitely played well. I still think it's not quite earned. Mm. I would have liked to have seen a bit more of Kane to really appreciate that. Just a few lines about only one person in a million can do what I can do. It's Mm. not about knowledge, it's about technique. Yeah. The sort of stuff that they do when Villa... He's talking about his skills as a pickpocket. Yes, and a lock picker. Yeah, all of that sort of thing. That This is not just about follow the bouncing ball. It really Mm. is about a skill that he has. Yes. We really don't develop that. I think it needed that to really work. Yeah, that's probably a fair call. But, look, the surgery does happen. He's able to cue again. Yes. Well, sorry, he's able to get the limiter working. Yes. Well, the limiter clearly has an internal... I mean, there's the bit, obviously, that you see on the top of David Jackson's head... But there is clearly a deep internal component to it as well, because he's watched Kane put the yes. probes, what's obviously meant to be deep inside Gang's skull. Yeah, and that really does reinforce that this is actually delicate brain surgery. It's not just a basic soldering job. No, a bit of spot welding. No, yeah. that's right. And I do love the line and the delivery, particularly as Kane is being sent back to XK72 at the end, where Blake says, Is there any way we can thank you? You could try getting caught. Now, that, of course, leads into the final scene. I reckon that the entire last 
five minutes of this, all the ending stuff is actually woeful. Tell me if I'm wrong. I was going to say, I do think this is where the episode falls down. Yeah. We have the scene with Kane back in Farron's office where he really just tips right over the edge. You're right, it does really come out of nowhere. Nothing we've seen of Kane says that he's a complete barking loony. It is probably the lack of setup or anything for him. There is perhaps that thing where he's had his worldview directly challenged. He's obviously been threatened directly by Black, which I guess you could say is obviously meant to have had a fairly deep impact on him. And, you know, maybe Farron smacking his hand away is another threat to his beautiful hands that... Yeah, I don't think what you're saying is unfair. That's clearly what's intended. I just think that Kane going from... Uh, very autocratic, fascistic, and driven to just so postal that he has to belt a guy to death for touching his hands. With a telephone, With yes. a telephone. <laughs> and then just sort of stand there staring at them as plasma bolts closing on the station. And, and sorry, at the same time as which you clearly have the weapons officer who's sitting there going, oh, what should I do? Tell me what to do, Farron. Yes. Like, dude, dude, maybe turn the force wall on. Do, do you they know? have shields? Like, yes, don't, know, but dude, you know, don't just sit there. Yeah. And apart from which, you've got the Federation pursuit ship where the plasma bolt misses for no apparent reason. No, that's right. There isn't even, like, sort of, let's do a quick manoeuvre or let's, you know, there isn't even it one line. It just bounces off the shield. Yeah, yeah there, but... there isn't even one line to sort of explain why this happens. And it's just all... It literally feels like they've got to the last five minutes to just, look, let's just wrap this up. We don't care how. Let's just get this done. Because none of it works. I'm sorry, none of it no, works. No, it just feels very tacked on. Yes. Yeah, you're right. As I said, whether it is a thing that we don't meet these characters until, let's face it, we only have probably 20 minutes with these characters really before... Oh, not even, not yeah, even. Yeah, before they're written out. Yeah, take out the credits, you have about 17 minutes of mm. all of the XK72 stuff. Yes. I was actually going to say, I think it's then worsened probably by the scene after it, which is the Welcome Back Gang scene. Oh, yeah. The Scooby-Doo ending. Yeah, I just found that, and this is really where it did really stop for me. I just found this really forced and stupid and actually just undermined the rest of the episode, really, for me. Because, And look, this is probably leading into the bigger gang discussion, Mm -hmm. but this bloke has just attacked all of the crew members... He's tried to kill at least two of them directly, as in he's had his hands around their throat or around their neck, and clearly he was about to beat Avon to death with the thing he ripped off the wall. Yes, his intentions towards Jenna, it's implied are quite seedy. I would say his intentions towards Kelly, it's not an implication. No, it's very clear. We will talk about some of the potential aspects of Gan's character in a minute, but even if you leave any of that sort of stuff aside, surely they must realise by now how dangerous this bloke is. If the limiter was to go again or something else was to go wrong with him, they really struggled to control him. Yet, they're all just laughing, basically. Yeah, it's the lame force joke, force laughter. It, it might as well be an episode of the Brady Bunch. It is very much that sort of end of episode reset, you know, just to leave the characters exactly where you find them. Yeah, a couple of bad puns, a few force grins. and Yeah, and, and we're back to normality. Yep, and we'll on to have another jolly adventure next week. But also, don't forget, we've just seen the entire XK-72 basically blown off the face of space. Yes, that's true, and, and, and the next scene, they're all laughing. Yeah, there's not even one moment of that, you know. There is one moment of it, but then they're very like, oh, oh, well. Yes, oh, well. It happens. Yeah, so I did find that quite a sad ending, really, to the episode, because it could have been so much better.
We might now spend just a few minutes perhaps having the GAN discussion. So do you want me to sort of give you my two-line summary of what I think is going on? Mm-hmm. And I suspect you've then got more to add to that and we can go back, go back and look at other things in other episodes. I think it's actually very straightforward. Mm-hmm. GAN has got the limiter in there. It is designed to stop him being a killer. Mm-hmm. We know that. That's been stated. At the start of the episode, he's clearly, as Avon says quite reasonably, the limiter is malfunctioning. It's scrambling his brain, and that's why you're getting him mm-hmm. snorting and grunting and just being... And banging his head in pain and whatever. Yeah. yeah, and you don't see Gant's personality there. This is the limiter breaking down. Mm-hmm. I think that by the time you get to the scene with Callie, the limiter is now broken. So it is gone. It is not yep. working. It is a X limiter And therefore, in that scene, I think you actually see the true Gant. I think you see a very overtly different personality from him in that scene, mm-hmm. which to me implies that the limiter is curbing certain tendencies or certain aspects of his personality. Yep. I mean, it's something that we've seen mentioned before with Blake, mm. where they talk about rebuilding his personality and his memories. Yep. So it clearly exists in the universe. And the way that Gan is so cunning and manipulative, yes. he is so certain. Mm. And then that grin as he goes to throttle her and, and, and abuse her. Yes. I think that is the real Gan, and that's why he's got the limiter. Yeah. The first part of the episode, when he initially... You, you perhaps a little ambiguous with what he intends to do with Jenna, but I think sure. the initial stuff on the flight deck is clearly him just in a blind rage. He perhaps doesn't even recognise Blake. He just goes for, rah, Gan smash, basically. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably what you see, I think, when he comes in and starts attacking Avon. Yes. Um, again, it's just a blind rage. But... He, very much with that scene with Callie, he fakes being unconscious twice and waking up. He has a several sentence conversation with her and uses her name. So he clearly knows who she is, Mm -hmm. which you're right, implies that he knows exactly what he is doing when he attacks her. And that smile, it is very much, yes, you let me out of the restraints and now I'm going to kill you. Uh, and I'm going to enjoy doing it. Yeah. She's probably lucky that he obviously goes back into berserker mode again before he can kill her. Yes. But you do also have that moment where Kane sees him for the first time and, and does the... So explain to me why this man has a limiter and he knows that limiters are only placed in people, psychopaths, basically. Yeah, he says, a dangerous psychopath. Yes. And look, we probably should acknowledge the Liberation book by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore at this point, because in their discussion on breakdown, they do give quite a detailed breakdown. And their theory is that Gan is some form of sex killer. Yeah, and some of the evidence that they have in there is probably going a little bit beyond what I think is on screen. Mm. But there are, as we've hinted at over the last few episodes, things that back this up. So there is, I think, for this theory, evidence both in the episode and outside of it. Mm. In terms of episodes, you see, for example, a number of occasions where Gan is faced with women and his limiter causes him pain. Mm. You see it in Jewel, you see it in Project Avalon. So, for example, in Time Squad, mm. the Liberation book makes the case, and I think it's a bit of a stretch, but it is not unreasonable, that Gan in that episode is actually getting some vicarious pleasure. Out of Jenna being in danger. Yes. yes. Or being attacked. He can't do it himself, but he can sit there and let the Guardians attack her and mm. get vicarious pleasure from it. So I think we do see those hints built up there. I want to bring into this now another piece of our evidence from outside the series. Yep. And that's the previous Terry Nation series, Survivors. Oh, yes. Now... Ah, uh, yes. Okay, yes. Yes, you know where this is going. Yes, yes. I do. Yes. Now... One episode in particular is an episode called Law and Order. It's in the first season. It went out in June of 1975. Mm -hmm. It wasn't written by Terry Nation. It was written by Klein Exton. But 
very much part of an arc yeah. that Terry Nation was writing the bulk of. In that, you have a couple of characters. You have Barney, who is a mentally underdeveloped man, mm-hmm. and you have Tom, who is this sort of lecherous sort of poacher character mm. who they, they don't like, but he's very useful. And during the course of that episode, one of the members of the community, one of the women, is raped and killed. And then they, they go on as a community, you know, mm. how do we deal with this? Who's guilty? How do we punish them? And I won't go into the plot twist in there, but given that in that you have got a character who is mentally underdeveloped and, mm. you know, seen as being a bit of a level below the other characters, mm. given that you also have somebody who is a violent sexual criminal, you know, he rapes yes. and kills a woman, I would say that these are parallels that shows that this is stuff Terry Nation was putting in his fiction. Mm. So it's not as though the idea of Gan being a criminal or a sexual killer is something that is new to Terry Nation. This is something Terry Nation has done before. Or certainly at least is aware of, yes. Yes. Not to mention that he actually has the character of Vasor in his Doctor Who story, Keys of Marinus, as well. Mm. Oh, yes. Who attempts to rape Barbara. attempts to rape Barbara. So there is, I think... And Terry Nation is someone who is known to go back to the well on many occasions and, and reuse tropes, let's be yes. honest. So I, I think there is a good case that this trope does exist in the Nation literature and could be here. Yeah. So that that's my evidence. I'm probably going to turn the discussion just for a minute or two onto not so much Gam, but maybe David Jackson. Because I did make the point right at the top. I do think this is the moment where the series really turns its back on Gan as a character. Yeah, oh, look, I think as we said at the start of the episode, if... If you're going to give Gan his big episode of the series and this is it. Yeah. And David Jackson has some really good moments in this. His mm. stuff with Callie is really well played. He also gets some moments of, and I don't know how anyone else could do it, but he's literally just got to walk around snorting and... And, and grunting and grunting his head. Yeah. It's not exactly an acting tour de force. Well, not really. And I suspect that it's not something that he went home and, you know, what's my motivation for this? How can I make it work? Just, well, I guess I'll just grunt and slap my head a bit. I had the broader note that the limiter idea really is a bit of setup across the preceding episodes for no real payoff, really, here. I mean, this is obviously supposed to be the episode that deals with it, yeah. uh, in inverted commas, but there's no repercussions from this in the episode. It's only ever mentioned, I think, once more in the series ever again. A bit like the Zen being unhelpful stuff that we see in the earlier episodes, whether that's just something that Terry Nation had as an idea that just got lost, perhaps in the pressures of him having to deliver what was effectively 15 episodes for the first season, Mm. because there were two rejected scripts. So that just gets lost. Or whether it is the case, and I think this perhaps may even be closer to the truth, that by this stage, the series has really worked out which are going to be the important characters and the ones they're going to focus on. And unfortunately, none of them are Gan. The series has very much found its breakout character by now. Yes. You are at the point where they're sort of working out how the rest of the characters really fit in around Avon. Uh, yes. I mean, Blake at least is still the lead. Yes, because it's his name on the... It's his name on the, on the show, yes. Yes, his name on the title, so... And yeah, Blake still has a lot to do and Blake is still mm. the focus of the series. But you're right, and Chris Boucher particularly has clearly developed an affinity for Avon. Yes. Really, in some ways, if this was going to be Gan's reset episode, why can they not either remove or deactivate? If you are just going to go down the path that the limiter is what's causing all the trouble, and once they turn the limiter off or take it out, Gan's just a normal person again. You're right. All Kane would surely therefore need to do is just take the battery out, yes. or, or the space battery, or whatever yes. it is. So the idea is that there is clearly a reason that he has this thing in his head. And it's not just because he was a guy 
who was pushed to the point, killed somebody, and they stuck this thing in his brain. There is obviously a reason he has this limiter. But as I said, from this point, they just do nothing with it. The limiter really neuters him in some ways. I mean, he can't really do the big action stuff because obviously he can't kill anybody. So what do you really do with the guy? You would think there would be quite reasonable storyline about now that his secret, if you like, has been revealed and the crew realise perhaps that he is dangerous. Yeah. You could really do a storyline around how the crew come to terms with this. How does he now fit into the group now that they know what they know? Or indeed, the other storyline is one where somebody else in the crew is very overtly and clearly put in danger because Mm. of Gan's inability to protect them. Yes. Again, we see a bit of that in something like Time Squad. But Mm. could you imagine a plot where they're down, say, you know, with Travis or another Federation officer, and Gan is able to save somebody but can't, and then there's the whole, well, why do we even take this guy on missions? He can't do a job. Um, I mean, again, that's in some ways effectively neutering him, but... um, But at least getting some drama out of the neutering. Yes, that's true. I mean, look, we will perhaps see the knock-on effect of what happens in this episode next week. Yeah, yeah, to to an extent. But it is really a lost opportunity. And look, that's the case for any ensemble cast. I mean, look at any of the treks. Yes. And there are characters that are very well developed and focused on. Mm. And there's Deanna Troy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right. Well, look, we should keep moving. So I guess we spend a minute or two just looking at the other characters. And probably the one here, I think, who gets the actual character development this week is Avon. Yeah, Avon is actually really interesting in this one. Mm-hmm. We have, obviously, the stuff where he has been investigating SK-72 as a bolt hole. And he has what is, I think, one of his better-known lines when they're about to fly into the swirly thing. Blake, in the unlikely events that we survive this, yes. I'm finished. Staying with you requires a degree of stupidity of which I no longer feel capable. Now you're just being modest. But when he gets there, of course... The reality obviously hits home because even if Farron bends the rules and allows him to stay, he would then have a hold over Avon. Or indeed, there is always the risk that he will just, once he's got what he wants from Avon, he'll just betray him outright. It won't be a case he'll keep blackmailing him. He'll just get what he wants and then just turn Avon over. Which, of course, for Avon would be utterly unacceptable. It would. And plus, I suspect Avon also realised that he'd have to hang out for the next few years with this very tedious man. (laughs) You know, he, th- he thought Blake was bad, but, you know, Farron, phew, it's a yes, lot worse. The amount of paperwork living with Farron would involve. <laughs> the nice way, perhaps, of looking at that is clearly he's concerned about the crew and, you know, at least wants to come back and make the effort to warn them that the Federation are coming. Yeah, and that's the note that I made here. There's a really good sense of Avon balancing up, keeping his options open, mm. potentially walking out of the crew, being happy to ditch the crew, but not being willing to betray the crew. No, I think it is quite a case. Look, if they were to get away and he was okay with staying on XK-7 too, that would be fine by him. Yes, and indeed fine by Blake. Yes. Yes, well, of course, Blake does have his moment where it is really a case Avon has to want to stay. Blake will not try and force him. Yes, although Blake is very smug in it where they're having the discussion about why Avon hadn't told them about this place earlier. Mm. And Avon says, well, if he'd gone there with us, it would have ruled it out as an option. So (laughs) Blake is very smug like that. But another note I had, though, is that there's a lovely scene there where Blake and Avon are talking about the way the computers are not going to work and how it's going to Mm. affect the Liberator. And there you do get this sense of two 
intelligent people with mutual respect yes. actually thrashing out a problem. They really do play it as mutual respect. Even though they're antagonistic towards each other, I think we did mention it, they do understand each other. And there is a sort of a grudging respect there on both parts, really. Yeah, when it's Blake off fighting the Federation mm. and Avon disagrees with him fundamentally, it's purely antagonistic. But when they're both in it together and their objectives are in sync, they play it differently, and I think that's really effective. Mm. Before we move into our regular segments, just a, a couple of quick production notes. This is the episode where Gareth Thomas breaks his foot during the camera rehearsals, just before they start recording. David Maloney and Veer Lorimer immediately tell him, look, you should go to hospital, you have to get that checked out and everything. But of course, there is this just underlying knowledge that by this point in the season, they are already behind. And if he goes off to hospital, that's basically the end of the night's filming, which means that they're going to be even further behind. Gareth Thomas did say, look, to their credit, they didn't actually make him stay, but I get the impression they were all very glad when he did and carried <laughs> on with the filming. So they really just strap his foot up nice and tight with the BBC nurse, and he goes and then does the recording, and then he goes off to hospital. What a trooper. Yeah, that's right. And again, another shout-out to uh, the Making Blake 7 site. The Scorpio Attack website that underpins that Twitter feed, they have a copy of the letter Via Lorimer wrote to the Stage magazine, which was sort of the actor's newspaper, um, about what a top bloke Gareth Thomas was for um, for staying for the good of the company. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so... It wouldn't happen today. No, I don't think so. One other final note I had is the designer for this episode, which is a chap called... It's Peter Brahutsky, I think it's pronounced, who is best known as the designer for the interior of the TARDIS in An Unearthly Child. Of course, yes. Yes, yes. And, and of course, we see an actor playing him on screen in an adventure in space and time. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes. This is actually, I think, one of his very last credits. Okay. But uh, yes, that's a nice piece of genre history. Well, it certainly is interesting that the way the computer room is designed, mm. it is actually a three-dimensional set or a set with depth that everyone actually can move around. Yes. And he comes out behind stuff. So, yeah, interesting. Yes, it has a central column in it. That well, I wasn't can... going to go that far, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to our regular segments, the first of which is guest cast. Now, obviously, the big guest cast member for this week is Julian Glover, who has now nearly 60 years' worth of acting credits. Yes, and particularly in a lot of stuff you would have seen. Yes. For Doctor Who fans, obviously, he's Richard the Lionheart in the William Hartnell story of the Crusade. He also has an excellent turn as Count Scarlioni in The City of Death. Yes, excellent, excellent. He's General Veers in Star Wars, which perhaps isn't a big role, but you do know it's Julian Glover. Yep. He's a Bond villain. Uh, yes, that's right. He plays Chris Ratos in the Roger Moore Bond for Your Eyes Only. He's in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which we did mention in Duel, because his wife Isla Blair is in that with him as well. Yes. He's also in an episode of Space 1999, which perhaps isn't quite as good. That's the one when he's sort of in these silver tunic and little skirt type thing. Yeah, let's pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do remember, as you said, he is in a lot of stuff you would have seen. I do remember him in series like By the Sword Divided, which I remember being on in the mid-80s. Yeah, look, a couple that I mentioned as well. He's in four episodes of The Avengers. Uh, he okay. turns up in Rumpole. He turns up in Nancy Astor. A couple of more modern references. He is the voice of Aragog in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. That's the giant spider. That's the it? giant spider, yes. Yes. Uh, he's in an episode of Merlin. Yeah. And he's also in 31 episodes of Game of Thrones. So, yeah, I mean, that is really quite an expansive career. Mm. So the second one is 
my friend Farron. <laughs> your your favourite character, Farron. Yeah, and he's played by Ian Thompson. Now, as I said, Ian Thompson has again got sort of 40 plus years of credits. Yes, well, he's in stuff well into the 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. Probably his biggest role was the 24 episodes he did of A Family at War in yeah. 1970 to 72. Yeah, now I wouldn't have seen it on first broadcast. I am old enough. I do remember that being repeated here in Australia. That was a big budget series from Granada. Yes. It's a sort of a working class family as they go through the Second World War. Yeah, so he was in 24 episodes of that. He's, again, been in a lot of stuff you've probably seen. Bergerac, mm. D.L. and Pasco, four episodes of The Bill or Creatures Grown and Small, Minder. But we always give the Doctor Who credits. <laughs> He was in Doctor Who in The Web Planet playing an Optra. So right. if you want to see him sort of dressed up as a grub jumping up and down. He isn't the one who sticks its head in the wall. No, he's not like... Nemini, no. And it's a little <laughs> sad I know her name. But... <laughs> Uh, so look again I actually think he's very very poor in this mm. but he had a very successful career so well I was going to say I think in fairness to him it's not a very good role no no that is true and finally rounding out our guest cast is Christian Roberts uh, who plays Dr. Renor now he apparently auditioned for both Blake and later in the series auditioned for the role of Tarrant he started acting in the mid 60s probably his breakout role is in To Sir With Love He's the ringleader of the kids who are making Sidney Poitier's life a misery at the school. Oh, yes. And he's actually the one that Sidney Poitier has the boxing match with to try and bring him into line. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was his big breakout role. Now, he, again, has a lot of credits. You then sort of get into the early 80s and his acting credits just stop. Yeah, there's a 10-year gap before he's in an episode of The Bill in 1992. Yes, well, he actually spent that running his family business for a number of years. He now actually lives in Barbados. And runs a hotel. Okay. And he's been there since, I think, the early 90s. So he sort of made a brief return to acting after running the family business. And then, yes, basically moved to the West Indies and now runs quite a successful hotel over there. Okay. And he was in a few things, again, that you may have seen. He was in The Secret Army, an episode of UFO. Oh, yeah. And he was in the Avengers episode, Invasion of the Earthman. There you go. There you go. So, Liberator Database. Mm. A couple of universe-building points that I wanted to make. There is the line where they're talking about places they can go to get can help where Jenna says of this particular planet, they don't like humanoids in general and especially Homo sapiens. Yes. Which, again, is another clear indication that there are aliens in the Blake 7 universe, even if we hardly ever see them. Yes, that's right. Which I think is important. And we also, again, get that idea of not just neutrality, but that there is something on the other side of the Federation border. Yes, there are clearly worlds that are not aligned to the Federation. And indeed, we see, well, there are obviously a consortium them here that finance XK-72. Yes. And the pursuit ships clearly have orders to try not to antagonise them or mm. destroy them. But if they do, it doesn't matter too much. Our next segment is, it was the 1970s. Now, one note I had here, and this is pre-software revolution. So the computers and everything that we see here, it's all hardware-based, the tech. Yep. Avon clearly has to go into the room and start pulling circuit boards out and start modifying circuits everything it's not done via software yeah and another echo of that is again with the limiter where you get some very nice photography mm. and very nice camera work of showing the limiter in gan and and close-ups of it yeah but it is also very clearly a bunch of resistors and screws they've obviously found a very small circuit board out of something and just taken a very high risk shot of it yeah I think we probably can safely say we've done GAN Watch already for this week. <laughs> I will make the final point again, really, for what is supposed to be GAN's episode, this is really disappointing because he just gets nothing to do. And finally, what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? 
Now, as we heard in our opening sting, there is a very good put down of uh, Avon putting Blake down when Blake thinks they can do brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on, Blake. This is not something you can do by numbers, even highly sophisticated ones. Yes, and I like the follow-up line as well. There are quicker ways you could kill him, but there are none more certain. No. (laughs) Plus, of course, we do get the line and perhaps typical male, I can talk or I can work, but I can't do both. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I quite like it. It's not really a clever line. It's just a very clever way it's played after Blake has uh, rescued Avon from Gan. And he says, he got away from Kelly. (laughs) Avon just turned around, well, I can see that. But I think probably his most important line in this is the Blake, in the unlikely event we survive this, I am finished. Staying with you requires a degree of stupidity of which I no longer feel capable. Yes, but I must admit, I love Blake's comeback where he just deadpan just says to him, now you're just being modest. (laughs) So, yeah, look, for an episode in which it's not meant to be Avon at the front, Mm. Avon still gets some very cool moments. He does. Yeah. He does. Which brings us really to the end of the episode and our player of the week. Now, this is my episode, so I'm going to let you go first. I wrestled with this for a little while, but I'm, all jokes aside, I'm going to give it to Michael Keating as Villa. Okay, that's a first, actually. I think I don't think he's had a... No, he hasn't. And the reason I do that is, as I was watching this, particularly the second time through when I'm really making my detailed notes for the podcast, there were many, many occasions when I noticed what Michael Keating was doing. I noticed his portrayal, I noticed his performance, Mm. Uh, he gives some very human stuff, as you said, all the stuff at the end, he plays really well, and he actually, to me, livens up or or adds interest to what were otherwise very flat scenes. So so in an episode that, let's be honest, I found very flat, Mm. I thought that he did still rise above that, and I think it's about time that he had a uh, Player of the Week award, and I'm very happy to give it to him here. Well, mine's perhaps a little more controversial, I actually gave it to David Jackson. Okay. Partly because I felt sorry for him, but really because... As we have said, this episode gives Gan quite short shrift. And I think the fact that he is still prepared to throw himself into running around corridors, banging his head against the wall and crying out in pain and whatever. And I do really like the scene where he tricks Callie into letting him out of the restraints. Yeah, look, that is very well played. You're right. Given the material he has, he doesn't... You, you, you could see a lot of actors would have done this really half-assed. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was I, I think. About. And he doesn't. He really does. He is putting himself out for this. Yes. Did you have Julian Glover as an honourable mention? I did, because I think, as we said, it's not a very good part, but he does make that watchable. He does lift one of three ciphers to mm-hmm. above that. Yes. And I'll give him credit for that, but not quite award-worthy in my view. <laughs> So this has probably been a first for us on the podcast. It's the first time I've been noticeably more down on an episode than you have. Yes, indeed. But look, although there is a drop in quality for the last sort of three or four episodes of Series 1, there is still a lot of really good stuff in there. There's a lot Mm. of interesting stuff in there, particularly some of the Servalane and Travis stuff we've still got to come. So there is a, a lot to discuss over the next few weeks. Yes. So next fortnight, we'll be back with Bounty. Until then, I've been Dave. I've been Richard. Set a course for Lindor. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. 
We can also be found online at facebook.com slash space4pc and on Twitter at space4pc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. soon can you complete? 35 minutes? Do it in 20. Or you'll kill me. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. In 25 minutes I'm returning you to your station if you haven't completed your work. Your threats don't bother me in the least, you know. I shall destroy your hands. 20 minutes. <laughs>